0: It was a particularly warm day in 1913 when Charles Lightoller decided to take some time to play a couple of tennis matches with his friends. Lights was glad for a bit of a diversion. The last year had grounded the seaman. He was the face of the Titanic catastrophe and he had been a perfect salesman for the White Star Line to distract from the perceived cowardice of J. Bruce Ismay. Lightoller's miraculous survival and testimony and knowledge that a perfect storm of events collided with flawed safety requirements garnered sympathy for the company. In fact lightoller had turned most inquiries into advocacy for proactive changes in maritime safety laws in a surprising turn of events the public backlash and mob quickly turned its anger toward the crew of the californian and captain stanley lord 20 miles away from the ship not only seeing the distress rockets but simply taking note of them and going to bed. No one woke up the wireless operator on board until far too late. And it was the Californian that received the most vitriol at the inquiries. That didn't absolve the White Star Line of everything, but the distraction of the rage towards the Californian gave them a moment to breathe. And the landbound lightoller needed the joy of an afternoon tennis match. Lights, now staring 40 in the face, was still pushing his body to the limit, but the matches that day in the heat were making his muscles very sore. He left Sylvia to entertain their friends as he went to soak in a cold ice bath. But once he sank inside the bath, the cold water caused Lights to tense up. He lost his breath and suddenly he was back back in the North Atlantic, listening to the screams of people around him dying. Lytoler became catatonic. An hour passed before Sylvia noticed he was gone and went looking for him. She called out to him with no response. After searching room to room, she noticed the door to the bathroom was slightly ajar. She knocked softly first before pushing the door open, and she gasped. She limped toward him and tried to stir him with no response. She shook him. She was small stature, but tried to drag him from the tub to no avail. And finally, she began screaming for his friends. They came running and dragged him out. As they pulled him from the icy cold water, light slowly returned to his senses. He laughed off the incident, but Sylvia insisted on calling for the doctor. The doctor diagnosed Lytoler with shock. Sylvia herself told this anecdote many years later to biographer Patrick Stinson. She said lights played it off. And this just all falls in line with Charles Lytoler, whose bravery was his identity. Every bit of guilt and pain had to be kept inside. Lights wanted to return to sea. And no one could know how badly he was suffering. This is God's Favorites, a history podcast, Charles Lytoler, Episode 3. Following the disastrous American inquiry on the sinking of the Titanic, Lytoler found the British inquiry to be conducted in a much more pleasing manner. That did not mean that the Americans were any less invested in the process. In fact, American newspapers were continuing to follow the developments in the British Inquiry as well. The May 3, 1912 edition of the North American, a Philadelphia newspaper, continued to highlight searches for bodies, the loss of Archibald Butt and Jacob Astor, and in this particular edition, a complete list of questions that would be posed to crew members in the Inquiry. The British Inquiry was being held that same day, under the leadership of John Bingham, First Viscount Mercy. We'll just refer to him as Lord Mercy. If Senator William Smith's American Inquiry was a circus of stupidity, Lord Mercy's was a delicate therapy session. That's not to say that Lightoller enjoyed the experience, it was just less painful, the questions allowed for Lightoller to show that the sinking was more so caused by a series of unfortunate events and less due to arrogance or incompetence. And as a result, stricter maritime laws were put into effect. The Olympic had even been taken out of the fleet to renovate for more lifeboats. The British inquiry seemed as if it were more forgiving perhaps to protect its own interests than the American had been. And in his autobiography, Lightoller pointed out that the conduct of the British inquiry was far superior and that, unlike Senator Smith, Lord Mercy seemed to know what he was talking about. Lightoller wanted to get back to sea, but he was stuck in litigation hell. The sinking of the Titanic needed a hero, and it was obviously not Chairman J. Bruce Ismay, It was Lightoller. Now, that's not to say that Lightoller was everyone's favorite person, nor did everyone believe every aspect of his testimony. Many knew he had underloaded the lifeboats. A man named Thomas Ryan lost his son in the sinking of the Titanic. Ryan, a farmer from County Limerick in Ireland, filed suit against the White Star Line. And yet again, Lightoller found himself in the middle of litigation and inquiry. And this time, there was no sympathetic Lord Mercy. Lightoller repeated the story again, portraying the incident as a series of events that were an act of God. This time, the courts did not agree, but found that Lightoller himself was not at fault due to his rank. The blame fell squarely on the shoulders of Captain E.J. Smith, who was found to be negligent, and Thomas Ryan, the plaintiff, won the case. There was no happy ending, no matter the outcome. One man had lost his son, and Lytoler had failed to protect the reputation of the man he considered a father figure. It was a tragedy all the way around, caused by human arrogance, whether the White Star Line would admit it or not. Biographer Patrick Stinson doesn't question much about Lightoller's reliability in his testimonies, but many across history have. The one story that seems to garner the most questions is the story of Lightoller's attempted rescue of Jack Phillips, Titanic's senior wireless operator. And by proxy, whether or not he knew about the Masaba ice warning ahead of the fact. Lytoller, in his autobiography, speaks of pulling Phillips out of the water and trying to save him. There are witnesses who support Lytoller's account saying that Phillips was on the overturned boat Collapsible B. And then there's Harold Bride. Bride was the junior wireless Marconi operator on board the Titanic, and he had a lot of issues with Lytoler's account of events that night. Bride immediately claimed that had Phillips seen the warning from the Masaba, he would have immediately handed it up the chain of command. The Masaba ice warning was a message received by Jack Phillips indicating that there was ice in the Titanic's path. Lytoler claimed not to know about this until he pulled Jack Phillips out of the water onto Collapsible B. Lytoler, shortly after the crash, had been working alongside fellow Collapsible B survivor Archibald Gracie. The pair had planned to write a biography of the incident. Gracie noted that Jack was on Collapsible B, but tragically, he was already dead. Furthermore, Gracie stated that the Carpathia coordinates were provided by Harold Bride, not Jack Phillips. Gracie would unfortunately pass away before his memoir was published. Harold Bride took issue with what appeared to be Lytoler throwing Phillips under the proverbial bus. Phillips, Bride said, would have never ignored such a warning. As Lightoller tells it, he knew nothing of the warning from the Masaba about ice in the area. He knew nothing, he said, until he spoke with Phillips on top of collapsible B. Harold defended Jack. Such efficiency does not go with putting urgent ice warnings under paperweights and promptly forgetting them. It was a clear jab at Lightoller's testimony. The press picked up on this feud pretty quickly. A few editorials on the subject went back and forth in several papers until Lytoler himself finally responded. Here is his response from the Dundee Evening Standard. As officer of the watch from 8 p.m. to 10 p.m. that night and in further defense of that splendid officer, William Murdoch, who followed me on watch from 10 p.m. to the moment of collision, that had the Masaba message been received by the bridge, and in reasonable time, the Titanic would not have been lost. Lytoler then added, I blame no one and justify no one. The point, it seemed, was now moot. I often say history is PR of yore, and none of us were there. All we have are words written by those with different views. The truth, as usual, is always likely somewhere in between. Lytoller was exhausted and beaten, coping with demons and tired of being constantly questioned. The White Star Lion Bram was also suffering, but the attention of the world would not remain upon them much longer. Tension was spreading throughout Europe. A great war was stirring, and Light was finally being called back to sea. His family was growing as well. By 1913, he would have three children, and by 1918, that number would grow to five, three boys and two girls. And it was at some point in 1914 that a much more tired and thinner Lightoller was called home to his favorite ship. The Oceanic. As tensions grew in Europe, the White Star Line, still recouping its losses, had to give command of their ship to the Royal Navy. The Oceanic was commissioned by the Royal Navy on the 8th of August, 1914. The transition was anything but painless because no one seemed to know who was in charge. Lightoller was given the rank of lieutenant in the Royal Naval Reserve, but the confusion came because the ship for all appearances had two captains. Captain Henry Smith had been the ship's merchant master, but He was now given the title of the commander of the Royal Naval Reserve. Then you had Captain William Slater of the Royal Navy, and on board you had Marines who knew what they were doing, and seamen who had never had any military training in their entire lives. It's what you would call a bit of a cluster. And on top of all this, Lightholder would once again be paired with Titanic's initial second officer, David Blair. Yes, the David Blair who ran off with the keys that unlocked the binocular cabinet that he had moved to another location. Biographer Patrick Stinson said that Lytoler did take Blair off to a private room at some point to give him a verbal lashing and a piece of his mind, but after that, Lytoler and Blair remained friends. The subject was never brought up again. On board, the strictness and hard work of the Royal Navy was causing exhaustion. On the Oceanic, Blair was serving as a navigator, and though my mention of his mistakes on this podcast should not make you think otherwise of his abilities, he was an incredibly talented sailor. On a consistent watch for German U-boats, the ship frequently took zigzagging patterns across the oceans, and with an extremely tired navigator, mistakes were made. Blair spent his days trying to figure out how to be unpredictable, creating charts day and night. Near Norway, the crew encountered a Norwegian bark. They ordered the ship to stop, and on board they found a single German man. To be frank, no one was even certain that the man had bad intentions, but given the current European conflict, he was thrown into a holding room as a prisoner. Now, whether the capture of the German was a success or mistake, it would hardly matter. On September 7th, David Blair thought the ship was headed toward the Isle of Fula. That's located about 20 miles outside of Shetland. And that was the moment that David Blair's calculations ended with the Oceanic slamming into a reef, causing catastrophic damage. And just as before, when the Titanic struck an iceberg, Lytoler was in his pajamas, drifting off to sleep. And once more, he bolted out of bed and ran to the bridge. It was foggy and dark. In his writings, Lytoler seldom shows much emotion. But the man on the way out ripped a clock off the wall to take with him as a souvenir of his favorite ship. He stayed on board until the end making sure everyone was off and then jumped into the cold water one more time before being quickly picked up by a lifeboat. And it's here in his memoir that as he was picked up, he turned around to take, quote, one last look at my old love. If Lytoler's wife ever had cause to be jealous, it was definitely his love for the Oceanic. I was never as fond of any ship, he wrote. The Great War, or World War I as we now know it, changed sea travel for years, and though Lights was of the patriotic sort, he was a creature of habit and felt shaken up. All the major powers were battling for control of the North Sea between Northern Scotland and Norway, and all the major seaports as well. Boats were full of military men and a melange of Royal Naval Reserve officers and a good amount of seamen who were just along for the ride. But after the loss of the Oceanic, ultimately pinned on the incorrect calculations of David Blair, Lytoler was sent to the naval barracks in Davenport. And he was bored out of his damn mind. His days were spent playing bridge, which he actually hated. It naturally follows that as soon as there was an opening in the flag lieutenant's office, Lytoler and David Blair volunteered for the work. They were told it was dangerous, but those in charge were aware of both men's reputations and that they both had seen some of the worst conditions of the sea. He was sent on several missions, but Lytoler's first real incident happened when he caught measles. It was not the hero's injury that he had hoped for. But then came the adventure that Lightoller never saw coming. Instead of fighting by sea, Lights was prepared for a new medium of battle, the seaplane. World War I was fought on the ground in the mud. It was at the time the ungodliest and yet most technical warfare anyone had ever seen. And now a man who spent his entire life at sea was taking to the air. Lightoller's job was to observe from about a thousand feet up from the deck of the ship, the Campania. And for someone who had faced the darkness of the ocean and had stared death in the face, um, forgive the expletive, flying scared the shit out of Lightoller. His job was to test new equipment. He would be observing and sending back coded messages on enemy positions on a system that didn't always work. The pilots would hide as best they could behind clouds while Lightoller made notes. And the other horrific part was the return or landing to the flagship. In his memoir, he wrote, It's one thing to say, Home, John, but it was another thing to get there. Because home was a landing strip on a zigzagging boat in the ocean. On one near miss, the plane began to run dangerously low on fuel. Lightoller was weighing his option and deciding if it would be better to have been captured by the enemies or crash. He began praying for the former. Given the nature of attrition during the Great War, I doubt that would have been the best option. Finally, the ship appeared and they barely made it back. And though World War I was one of the world's greatest tragedies, it is a little amusing to think that the man who had been practically invincible at sea was scared to death of flying. In a cruel turn of events, the test of the seaplane turned out to be a failure. The enemy positions tapped out by lights were never received. They had gone off course and had almost ran out of fuel and crashed and the machine had not worked. That's when Lights vowed to stick to the sea. Now a lieutenant, Lights was finally given command of his own boat. He was given command of the HMTB 117, His Majesty's torpedo boat. And it was here that Lights found himself in some of the more serious parts of warfare. It was hard work, but it was hard work that he knew how to do better than, say, jumping onto a seaplane. hmtb 117 was a part of the NOR Defense Flotilla serving to protect and patrol the Thames Estuary around London. The boat was not in great condition, but he had seen worse. Much worse. And this new location allowed him to be closer in proximity to Sylvia and their children. Not to mention that the work environment was actually kind of pleasant. But most things were pleasant compared to those who were fighting on the front. German zeppelins had dropped bombs on England for the first time. The crews ran drills to prepare for potential U-boat attacks, and naval intelligence worked to develop stronger defense systems and early warning devices. On July 31, 1916, the North Flotilla warned of incoming Zeppelins headed toward London. HMTB 117 set off at full speed. Light said on board he had a talented crewman with exceptional hearing, who heard the buzz before anyone else. Gunners on board the boat pointed and began firing on command. The Zeppelin moved to and fro, avoiding the onslaught, and it appeared that no damage had been done to the airship. Lights was baffled and contemplating his bad luck, but he couldn't wallow for very long, because that's the moment bombs started raining down upon him. A closer inspection of the Zeppelin showed that there had been some damage, but it managed to stay airborne and the firing of the guns had given the airship a perfect view of its target. But possibly too damaged to continue fighting, the Zeppelin turned away into the darkness. It had sunk a destroyer, but HMTB-117 and its crew had forced the Zeppelin away. Not quite a win, maybe a stalemate. And that's when Lightholder received an invitation to join the Dover Patrol, the Dover Patrol was an elite, but kind of discreet unit of the Royal Navy based out of Dover. They carried on operations and help patrols between there and the beaches of a town called Dunkirk in France. Lightoller was given command to a small craft called the HMS Falcon. Now a commander of a patrol boat, of men who he said appeared to not have the capability to think or act for themselves, Lightoller felt a little nervous. The patrols served mostly as lookouts. The Germans were overtaking essential seaports in Belgium. France was holding on, barely, and that was going to leave England very vulnerable. And with a boat that needed serious upgrades, Lightoller was a sitting duck. But the 1915 sinking of the Lusitania had caused a deep disdain of the Germans inside of Lytoller. World War I is so frequently called a war of attrition. The entire war was just governments throwing body after body. Lytoller was always ready for a fight with the Germans, so you can imagine his surprise on the 1st of April 1918 that it was an ally that took him out instead. In a heavy fog, a Royal Navy trawler, the John Fitzgerald, collided right into the Falcon. Lightoller remarked that the sinking was very similar to the Titanic in that a bulkhead gave way, but he sounded overall incredibly exhausted and tired of wrecking ships. He also noticed that the ship sank at around 2.15 a.m., close to the same time that the Titanic went down. And once again, Lightoller stayed on the ship till the bitter end, making sure everyone got off safely. During a court-martial, he was cleared of any wrongdoing and given command of a new ship, the HMS Gary. But it's with this command that comes one of the most controversial moments of his career at sea. Aboard the Gary Lights was no longer on patrol. He was in convoys, a a way to keep an eye on the North Seas and to protect other military equipment. He describes the convoy as a destroyer in front with the rest of the ships following behind. He also claims he suggested switching up the route a bit to avoid predictability. The North Seas were dangerous. During dinners, Lightholder would boast and say he thought he had better ideas of how to get these cargoes safely across. At which point, some people pointed out that they shouldn't be listening to a man who defended the people aboard the Titanic. Instead of being angry, Lights would usually laugh it off. But he was on a collision course. Captain Lieutenant Werner Fjörbringer Fjörbringer was ordered to take his new U-boat 110 to the North Sea. Around that same time, Leitoller was ordered to join a convoy heading that direction. At first, the days were uneventful. Bad weather made it difficult for U-boats to hit targets, so Fjallbringer hid waiting for something to happen. On July 19th, to give his tired men a break, he decided to resurface for some sunlight. He put his periscope up, and it took seconds. He spotted the convoy, and the convoy spotted him. An emergency signal was sent out, and Lytoler was the first to hear the warning. Fjallbringer had not fired on the convoy, and he had hoped that they would let him turn around, but that's the moment he heard the propellers of the Gary, and then the rain of depth charges. Lytoler circled the U-boat, continuing to fire as it began to come apart, UB-110 began to sink. Survivors began rising to the surface with their hands lifted above their heads. He said he realized pretty quickly that Lightoller was not going to order the gunmen to stop. Febringer stayed out of the line of fire but watched as his shipmates were gunned down. Some he also claimed had their heads split open with hot coals. He even claims to have heard one gunman scream, This! This is for the Lusitania! before striking one of the Germans in the head with a bullet. Whether it was hatred or apathy, it's impossible to know. But Leitholler did not interfere until the rest of the fleet arrived. UB-110 only took about a minute to sink. Those who survived were taken as prisoner. Fifteen people were pulled from the water. Scheringer accused Lighthole of atrocities in his own memoirs, but nothing ever seemed to come of it. The matter, investigated by the Royal Navy, was dropped, and Lights was promoted to lieutenant commander. In his autobiography, Titanic and Other Ships, Lights barely references the incident, saying he was far too concerned with the damage inflicted to his own ship instead of the Germans, saying only that His crew sent UB-110 down to the bottom of the ocean, where she belonged. God's Favorites is a bi-weekly history podcast talking about the people who seem to be God's favorites, or at least those who thought they were. Thanks to everyone on TikTok who made this a reality through our Kickstarter campaign, and thanks to everyone who is donating to our Patreon God's Favorites is now on Facebook, so you can join the conversation whenever you want. Unless your boss is looking over your shoulder. The podcast is written and produced by me, Melissa. You can find me on TikTok at Melissa Fairlady. Sources for today's episode include Patrick Stinson's biography, Lights, Charles Lytoler's autobiography, Titanic and Other Ships, The Dundee Evening Standard, the British and American Inquiry testimony and reports, and the North American newspaper from Philadelphia. And remember to join us next time as Charles Lightoller faces his most dangerous rescue yet, the evacuation of Dunkirk. See you next time friends.